When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Welcome back, everybody. Glad to have you here for another week of Scripture Study on Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and today we're going to be covering Moroni 1 through 6, the shortest chapters in the Book of Mormon, all piled together. If you're a Jeopardy fan, I miss Alex Trebek as well. You may remember sometimes there would be a, a category called potpourri, and it was kind of, I don't know exactly why they called it potpourri, but it was a compilation of questions that didn't really seem to fit under one specific category, kind of all thrown together. Maybe that's why they called it potpourri, a bunch of random things that somehow together smell really good. It actually reminds me of a certain kind of talk that President Gordon B. Hinckley occasionally gave in general conference, where rather than having one single theme that he developed throughout the course of his talk, he kind of jumped around from this topic to that, describing this issue in the church or this thing that's happening around the world, and just addressing them all. And I always enjoyed that potpourri approach, to be able to discuss a lot of different issues, each of which was important, but none of which required a full-length talk to develop. Well, Moroni 1 through 6, in a way, is Moroni's potpourri, each chapter addressing a specific issue that is of great importance, but can be handled fairly briefly. And to kind of put the whole idea into perspective, let's put ourselves in Moroni's sandals. Back in Mormon 8, verse 1, he says, Behold, I, Moroni, do finish the record of my father Mormon. Behold, I have but few things to write, which things I have been commanded by my father. Remember, Mormon 8 comes right on the heels of Mormon's final words to this future audience of readers in Mormon chapter 7. And Moroni seems just to be putting the final touches on his father's work. He refers to it as the record of my father Mormon. He hasn't yet really taken ownership that this is now his full responsibility. The plates and record are his as much as his father's. And he says what he's going to write, which admittedly are few things, are things which had been commanded him by his father. His people were gone, he says, and he was simply trying to fulfill the commandment of his father. Beyond that, it didn't really matter what happened to him. He planned to write it, to hide up the records unto the Lord, and then come what may. I am the last man standing, and I have no idea what will become of me. Now, for the last three weeks, we've been studying the book of Ether. So we do know that Moroni took it upon himself to extend his father's work to the point of repeating it with a record of scripture that his father had not abridged. But by the time you get to Moroni chapter 1, verse 1, you get a small sense of what Moroni plans to do from here. Now, I, Moroni, after having made an end of abridging the account of the people of Jared, I had supposed not to have written more, but I have not as yet perished. Interesting that he thought that his work was done, but since his life wasn't, then his work wasn't done either. If we take nothing else from the examples of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve, it's the obvious truth that God does not believe in retirement from building his kingdom. I'm still here. God is still lending me breath. So I might as well use the time remaining to do something. 
I remember taking a master's class years ago at BYU from Joseph Fielding McConkie. And I remember the assignment each week was to have a, we had a prearranged topic from the Book of Mormon, and the expectation was in four pages to write everything we possibly could about how the Book of Mormon treated that particular topic. The hard part was not filling four pages. It was confining ourselves to four pages. How do you summarize everything the Book of Mormon has taught about the atonement in four pages? Good luck. But I'll always remember what Brother McConkie would say about filling every possible space. He'd say, you have four pages to write what the Book of Mormon teaches about this topic, and I want four full pages on it. I don't want three and a half. I don't want three and three quarters. If there's still one line remaining, then fill it. Strike a blow for the kingdom. I, that's what he always said. Strike a blow for the kingdom. And I just thought, man, if I can squeeze one more line in to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, I am striking a blow. And here Moroni is doing exactly that. I thought I was done, but as long as life remains with me, I will strike a blow for the kingdom. He repeats the idea in verse 4. I write a few more things contrary to that which I had supposed, for I had supposed not to have written any more. It's interesting that often God gives us opportunity to do things that we had not supposed we would be able to do, that he extends opportunities to be of service to others. Senior couples that hadn't supposed to be able to serve and yet they do. People who supposed that certain opportunities to be of benefit to others had come and gone, or that they had missed through fault or no fault of their own. And yet, contrary to what they supposed, God gives them opportunity to be a blessing. And that's exactly Moroni's intention. I write a few more things that perhaps, just maybe, I don't know for sure, but I hope, that perhaps they may be of worth unto my brethren, the Lamanites in some future day, according to the will of the Lord. I'm amazed that Moroni could still refer to the Lamanites as his brethren. Every person he's ever known has been slain by the Lamanites. He's the last of his people, and yet he still looks at his former enemies as his eternal brethren and would do anything to speak to them from the dust at some future day. He knows he can't speak to them today. He says that earlier in verse 1, I make not myself known to the Lamanites, lest they should destroy me, and no doubt destroy the record as well. There's such an irony there. I have something I want to give them more than anything else, but timing is essential here. If I give it to them today, it will make no difference in their lives. But at some future moment, whenever they are prepared for it, I will be ready to speak to them. For those with family and friends who may be in similar circumstances, fear that if you were to bring up gospel topics, they would destroy you, then simply be patient. Consider them and treat them as your brethren all throughout, so that when they come to themselves, as every prodigal eventually does, they'll know that the way homeward is open to them, that they'll be accepted there by brethren with robe and ring and fatted calf at the ready. Moroni knows there is no hope in the present, but he has all hope for the future. And if he's focused on writing things of worth, then it's interesting to see what he chooses to talk about in the next six chapters. What will be of greatest worth in a future day when Lamanites are actually open to the message of the Book of Mormon? 
when this record has passed to the Gentiles and then from the Gentiles back to this remnant of the house of Israel. As the kingdom of God is rolling forth across the earth, as the gathering of Israel is underway, what messages does Moroni consider to be of greatest worth? It reminds me of an incredible statement that the prophet Joseph Smith made. He said, the building up of Zion is a cause that has interested the people of God in every age, especially, I would add, during those ages where the building up of Zion at the time seemed impossible. Sound like Moroni? It is a theme upon which prophets, priests, and kings have dwelt with peculiar delight. They have looked forward with joyful anticipation to the day in which we live. And fired with heavenly and joyful anticipations, they have sung and written and prophesied of this our day. It's exactly what Moroni did as soon as he picked up the pen from his father in Mormon chapter 8 and Mormon chapter 9. Everything that he's doing here in the book of Moroni. Back to Joseph's statement. But they died without the sight. Moroni would as well. We are the favored people that God has made choice of to bring about the latter-day glory. It is left for us to see, participate in, and help to roll forward the latter-day glory. When the saints of God will be gathered in one from every nation and kindred and people and tongue, the heavenly priesthood will unite with the earthly. Remember, we saw that last time with Ether's final prophecies of Jerusalem East and Jerusalem West, of old and new, of heavenly and earthly, of the kingdom of God going forth so that the kingdom of heaven could come. And as Joseph concluded this statement, and whilst we are thus united in one common cause to roll forth the kingdom of God, the heavenly priesthood are not idle spectators. The spirit of God will be showered down from above and it will dwell in our midst. You see what's on Joseph Smith's mind? Living in that day of fulfillment, the dispensation of the fullness of times, looking back to his prophetic predecessors, he knew that they were putting all their eggs in the restoration's basket, banking on the building up of Zion, gathering in one, the priesthood spreading across the earth, the Spirit of God descending upon the Lord's people. Think about that in terms of what we see in these first six chapters of Moroni. He focuses on the cause of Christ and the gift of the Holy Ghost, priesthood authority, the sacrament, the church of Christ. This is the building up of Zion across the earth. This is something we are supposed to see and participate in and help roll forward. And Moroni's message is to anyone who wants to know how that is done. There are parts that feel a little like a church handbook of instructions. But throughout, there is an overall spirit of building up the kingdom of God. He begins that in chapter 1, where you get a sense of the cause of Christ and the importance of being true to that cause. Right after saying he was hiding out from the Lamanites in verse 1, he says in verse 2, For behold, their wars are exceedingly fierce among themselves, and because of their hatred, they put to death every Nephite that will not deny the Christ. And I, Moroni, will not deny the Christ. In the face of opposition, against the odds, with his life on the line, I will not deny the Christ. He will stand firm. He will be loyal, even if that requires a horrible loneliness that in his case would last for over three decades. 
three decades plus spent doing what he says at the end of verse 3, wandering whithersoever I can for the safety of mine own life. Now the thought of Moroni wandering to preserve his own life, no doubt being guided by the Holy Ghost to find that self-preservation, gives me the opportunity to correct a mistake that I made two weeks ago, which I apologize for. If there are mistakes, they be the mistakes of man. And here's one of the mistakes of this man. When I was talking about Achish and Jared and this original secret combination that formed at the behest of Jared's wicked daughter, I made a mistake and misinformed you that the success of that secret combination resulted in the loss of life for Jared's father, Omer. And it didn't. You see, the efforts of that secret combination did cost Omer the kingdom, but it didn't cost him his head. As it says at the beginning of Ether 9, the Lord was merciful unto Omer and to his loyal children. And this is what he did. The Lord warned Omer in a dream that he should depart out of the land. And so he did, with any that would join him. What followed back in the kingdom that he had abandoned, there was internecine warfare among Jared's people that eventually led to the death of all but 30. Who did what? Who ended up joining Omer in exile returning to him and essentially returning the kingdom to him. It's a beautiful principle, very important for our day, that in spite of the machinations of secret combinations all around us, we can find safety as we trust in the Lord, as we follow the promptings that come from our Father in heaven. Omer left, having been warned of God. Here, Moroni is wandering whithersoever he can for the safety of his own life. We will be guided by living prophets and apostles in what it means to flee Babylon, to gather and stand in holy places and be not moved. That will become increasingly important as we approach the second coming of Christ, as an increasingly wicked world wants to attack anyone who will not deny the Christ. They may attack you on social media. They may crucify your reputation. But at the end of the day, will we be loyal to the cause of Christ and not deny him? To stand up for him and his gospel will require faith and fortitude. And to maintain our safety and security throughout that time, we can rest assured that the same God who guided Omer to safety, the same God that was with Moroni as he wandered whithersoever he could, will guide us as well. With that spiritual guidance in mind, so important as we try to defend the cause of Christ through these last days, it seems only fitting that in chapter 2, Moroni shifts to the importance of the Holy Ghost and how to bestow that gift upon others. You remember that incredible general authority training that President Boyd K. Packer gave in 2000. I mentioned this in a previous video. As he trains general authorities in hopes that they would get the water to the end of every row, the most important message he could give to them after having read the standard works and everything they had to say about the Holy Ghost, having reread Jesus the Christ and the life of Christ and Fox's Book of Martyrs, what did President Packer say? That we have to teach the saints to live worthy of the Holy Ghost 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for the rest of their lives, whithersoever we go, and however long our mortal mission lasts. In verse 1, these are the words of Christ which he spake unto his disciples, the twelve whom he had chosen, as he laid his hands upon them. We'll see the laying on of hands mentioned several times. He called them by name. That is a common thread that runs throughout priesthood ordinances and priesthood blessings. The Lord tends to work one by one in these things. 
And that individuality is best illustrated by the individual's name being invoked. He called them by name, saying, Ye shall call on the Father in my name in mighty prayer. And after ye have done this, ye shall have power that to him upon whom ye shall lay your hands, ye shall give the Holy Ghost. And in my name shall ye give it, for thus do mine apostles. Now, if you focus on the last half of the verse, that's the confirmation. That is giving the gift of the Holy Ghost. It's by the laying on of hands. It's in the name of Jesus Christ. It is by authority. That seems to be suggested in that last phrase. Thus do mine apostles, people that Jesus had chosen and ordained and authorized to do this kind of work. But notice the first half of the verse. This was eye-opening to me this time through. After you have done this, then you'll have power to do that. And the that is to lay on hands and give the gift of the Holy Ghost. Well, what's the this that you're supposed to do beforehand so you'll have power to do what comes after? Even before the confirmation, before exercising the authority to give the Holy Ghost, you need to call upon the power of God to be able to do so. And that power comes by calling upon the Father in the name of Christ in mighty prayer. Mighty prayer that precedes the use of the priesthood. You see, there's two parts of the priesthood that we could talk about here. There's the authority of the priesthood, and then there's the power of the priesthood. I remember a talk that Elder John H. Grober gave years ago that really emphasized the difference between them. And that having been ordained, we'll see more of that in chapter 3, you have the authority of the priesthood. And it's by that authority that you are laying on hands. It's by that authority that you are performing this work. Authority that is always mentioned in those blessings. But where does the power come in? There are priesthood holders out there that may have the authority of the priesthood, but who lack its power. The power of the priesthood is inseparably connected with the powers of heaven and can only be accessed through personal worthiness and righteousness. But to develop power to match our authority, that's what's expected of each person who functions and officiates in the name of God. And all of this is as true for God's daughters as it is for God's sons. Because anytime we do anything in his name, we are exercising his authority. And that authority is priesthood authority. For as Elder Oaks has taught, what other authority is there? So sisters as well as brothers, if you have the authority to function in God's name, do you also have the power to do so? God recognizes the authority that he has bestowed upon his children regardless. But to recognize power or its absence is on us and how we live the gospel. Think about what Alma did before baptizing Helam at the waters of Mormon. This was a private prayer that preceded the public baptismal prayer that he then offered. He said, O Lord, pour out thy spirit upon thy servant, that he may do this work with holiness of heart. You see what Alma is doing there? He already had the authority to perform this ordinance. He'd had it when he was a wicked priest of Noah. He was a priest after all. However, he had no power to match that authority, and he knew it. And as he went through that repentance process based on the message that he'd received from Abinadi, it's here that he is praying for the power to match the authority that he was about to exercise. Brothers and sisters, anytime we're about to exercise divine authority, I hope we will plead for divine power, that our prayers may be mighty, 
so that the exercise of God's authority may be mighty as well. Power to match authority. Moroni then concludes this chapter by saying in verse 3, Now Christ spoke these words unto them at the time of his first appearing, and the multitude heard it not, but the disciples heard it, and on as many as they laid their hands fell the Holy Ghost. I'm grateful that Moroni included that, to recognize the fact that there are some things that the multitude may not hear, but that God's chosen apostles and prophets have heard, and to be able to accept the fact as is said at the end of Doctrine and Covenant section 1, that whether by the Lord's voice or the voice of his servants, it's the same. That even though I wasn't physically present for the heaven-to-earth communication, I was present for the earth-to-earth, and that is just as authorized. And the proof is in the pudding. By their fruits ye shall know them. When they did lay their hands upon people, the Holy Ghost did come. When prophets and apostles spoke in the name of God, the Spirit confirms that message. Now, let's not lose sight of the links that are being forged here. Loyalty to the cause of Christ in chapter 1 is going to require an outpouring of the Holy Ghost upon you. That is what will strengthen you and confirm the faith that you are trying to defend. So how do we give people the gift of the Holy Ghost? Well, giving the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands will require priesthood authority. So how do we ordain people to that priesthood? Here's where it comes in chapter 3. The manner which the disciples, who were called the elders of the church, ordained priests and teachers. Verse 2, after they had prayed unto the Father in the name of Christ, they laid their hands upon them. You get the same order that was mentioned in chapter 2, that before the actual ordination, there is a prayer for power, power to match that authority. And then by that authority, in verse 3, we say, in the name of Jesus Christ. Again, all things are done in his name because it's by his authority that they are honored. I ordain you to be a priest, or if it be a teacher, I ordain you to be a teacher. And what are the roles and responsibilities of those Aaronic offices? To preach repentance and remission of sins through Jesus Christ. It's not through the holder of the priesthood. It's not through the priesthood itself. That repentance and remission, I love that those two come together in the same breath. You cannot separate true repentance from real remission of sins. That's what it's for. Those priests and teachers mentioned here, Aaronic offices, have the authority for repentance and baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. The role of the Aaronic priesthood is sin elimination. It is repentance and remission of sins. But it's not the water in the font that does it. It's not the hands on your head that does it. It is Jesus Christ that does it. And what is it that activates Christ's redeeming power in our lives? It is the endurance of faith on his name to the end. Amen. I love this Nephite ordination. It ties together so many of the elements that we'll see in section 13 and section 20 of the Doctrine and Covenants. It specializes in the first three parts of the fourth article of faith, the first principles and ordinances of the gospel. It is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and enduring in that faith on his name to the end. It is preaching repentance for the remission of sins which comes through the ordinance of baptism. Again, these are Aaronic ordinances. Those three, are, that's the focal point. And it's the higher priesthood, the elders of the church that are mentioned at the beginning of chapter 3, who not only participate in the ordination of these priests and teachers, but also build upon that Aaronic ministry by following it with a Melchizedek ministry, which introduces people 
into the presence of God. Aaronic ordinances eliminate sin. Melchizedek ordinances bring people into the presence of God. That's why the gift of the Holy Ghost comes through the Melchizedek priesthood. After Aaronic ordinances have prepared people for that. That's why the sacrament prayers, which we'll see in a moment, promise the companionship of the Holy Ghost, a Melchizedek promise. At the end of renewing our baptismal covenants, baptism and sacrament being Aaronic ordinances. The Aaronic priesthood isn't the preparatory priesthood simply because it prepares holders of the Aaronic priesthood to become holders of the Melchizedek priesthood. No, that's too self-centered for what the priesthood is meant to do. It's never about the holder. It's about the recipient of its blessings. And so the Aaronic priesthood as the preparatory priesthood is simply to help people through the Aaronic ordinances eliminate sin so that they are prepared for Melchizedek ordinances that bring the power and presence of God into our lives. You get a slight glimpse of that in chapter 3. By the time you get to verse 4, after this manner that I've just explained, did they ordain priests and teachers according to the gifts and callings of God unto men. And they ordained them by the power of the Holy Ghost which was in them. Again, notice that power is emphasized. Authority is simply assumed. That is one of the ultimate gifts of God. And it should be present anytime we bestow the gifts and callings of God upon another. I would also add, by the way, that if the power of the Holy Ghost needs to be part of the ordination, and I would, I would expand that to suggest any exercise of the authority of the priesthood, then we must be guided by revelation in all that we do. We believe that a man must be called of God by prophecy and by revelation, we say in the fifth article of faith. High priests anciently in the Old Testament had a Urim and Thummim as part of the standard issue priesthood uniform. The book of Revelation and section 130 of the Doctrine and Covenants both suggest that eventually the Urim and Thummim will be standard issue for each of us as well. Well, we better get started and point ourselves in that direction. Now we've gone from the cause of Christ requiring the Holy Ghost and the Holy Ghost requiring priesthood ordination and now priesthood ordination going to the ordinances that the priesthood offers, primarily the sacrament, which doesn't simply renew our baptismal covenant, but by renewing our relationship with Christ as forged by those covenants, it renews everything else that we do and in making promises to him. These next two chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5, are perhaps the most often quoted scriptures in all the standard works, whether as produced here in the Book of Mormon or in section 20 of the Doctrine and Covenants. We hear them almost every single week of the year, and they have to be recited perfectly. There is power in these prayers. Chapter 4, the prayer on the sacramental bread, and chapter 5, the prayer upon the water or in their case, the wine. Allow me to preface these sacrament prayers with a beautiful verse in the Psalms. Psalm 34, verse 8, that says, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Can't you picture the tree of life with that statement? Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's that seed that grows within us and becomes delicious unto us. It's more than just a cognitive recognition of things. Remember, this is Mormon's youth that says that he tasted and knew of the goodness of Jesus. Don't just see it. Don't just know it. Taste it. 
And I love that the sacrament is an opportunity for us to experience that through that sense, to taste and not just see that God is good. I remember once in Tennessee going through a lot of health problems, some major digestive issues, and we weren't sure what was going on, and I had to be hospitalized several times, and even to the point that one time the ER tech told me later and said, you know, you looked a lot better this time than the last time I saw you. And I thought, wow, I was memorable last time? I don't want to be recognized at the ER, but evidently I was, and I'd been making progress, I guess. But I remember going on this juice cleanse to just try to reboot the whole digestive system. And for a solid week, I didn't eat anything solid. It was just whatever that weird concoction is of lemon juice and honey and cayenne pepper. I figured I'd give anything a try. But for a week, that's all I consumed. I think I started it on a Monday, and the following Sunday rolled around. It had been a week since I'd had anything solid in my mouth. But I took the bread and put it in my mouth, and all of a sudden it hit me how different this felt to be tasting something that wasn't lemon and cayenne pepper, to taste and see that the Lord is good. That needs to happen to us whenever we partake of the sacrament. To me, I think the sweetest memory I have of seeing someone else taste and see of the goodness of Jesus in the sacrament was a woman that I knew years ago who had been part of a disciplinary council that I was a part of in a bishopric. I don't remember the details of anything we talked about, but I remember seeing her partake of the sacrament for the first time after her repentance process was complete. I hadn't meant to. I wasn't like spying on her during the sacrament. I was just up on the stand with the other members of the bishopric as the sacrament was being passed, and I just happened to look up when the tray got to her. And as she picked up the piece of bread, she just held it and looked at it for a moment before she partook of it. And it was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen. There was true appreciation for the cost behind those emblems. It changed my perspective on the sacrament ever after. That needs to happen to us. In chapter 4, Moroni explains how it's supposed to be done. And I hope these words are not mere instruction to us. I hope they are inspiration for us. The manner of their elders and priests administering the flesh and blood of Christ unto the church. Now, no, we do not believe in the doctrine of transubstantiation. The bread and the water or wine do not turn literally into the flesh and blood of Christ. But for all intents and purposes, are we seeing those things behind the emblems that are used to represent them? If all we see is bread and water, then we are not seeing that the Lord is good. If all we're tasting is bread and water, then we're not tasting that the Lord is good. They administered it according to the commandments of Christ. This is something he wants us to do to the point of commanding us to participate in it. With desire have I desired to partake of this Passover with you, this last time, he said to his apostles at the Last Supper. Desire to the point of requiring it. Wherefore, we know the manner to be true. It came from Christ after all. The elder or priest did minister it, and here's how they did it. They did kneel down with the church and pray to the Father in the name of Christ. Now I know that the priest who is offering the prayer does kneel down. 
behind the sacrament table. And no, the congregation does not kneel together as the prayers are being offered. I've been to Catholic Mass where the congregation does kneel together. There are these things in, at the back of the pew in front of you that you can fold down and are padded on the top and you can actually kneel there as a congregation. We don't do that in our church, but spiritually speaking, we should. Do we approach that sacrament table mentally, spiritually, emotionally, on our knees? And if collectively we are in that attitude, whether or not we're in the physical posture, if we're in the spiritual attitude of kneeling before the throne of grace, before a garden tomb that contains the body of Christ after his blood was shed, in that attitude, with that spiritual preparation, then we're ready to hear what is said in verse 3. And honestly, this is a prayer that can be savored phrase by phrase. Whenever I've had a chance to train priests in the Aaronic Priesthood, I've often just pled with them, please slow down as you're offering the sacrament prayers. Almost with every punctuation mark, stop to think to ponder, to savor what you've just said. There are lessons in every word, practically. The prayer begins, O God, the Eternal Father. Do you see who we're speaking to? We're not mumbling into a microphone. We're not even speaking to a congregation of saints. We are addressing our Father in heaven. And in two different ways, we first refer to him as God, and then we refer to him as the Eternal Father. Now, as I listen to those words and ponder them, I get a sense, again, as I talked about with the vision of the brother of Jared, that not only does he see all things, this grand panoramic vision, the infinite, he also saw the finger of the Lord, the intimate. Just the other day, I was speaking to a group of Aaronic priesthood holders and asking them about those two phrases and seeing if they could figure out a difference between the two. And they did. They got the sense that God is the more formal way we address him. And Father is the more informal way that we address him. That God provides this sense of the infinite and Father provides the sense of the intimate. And that he is both. There are times in my own personal prayers I feel to call him Father, and other times overwhelmed by this sense of reverence and awe that I feel to refer to him as God. And in the sacrament, both of those come together so beautifully, the infinite and the intimate, that we address God, the Eternal Father, and we ask him for something. We don't demand it. We don't expect it. We simply plead. And we don't ask for this in our name. We're not worthy to ask for it. In fact, it's because of our unworthiness that we need this so desperately. And so we ask for this blessing in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the great intercessor, the great intermediary. And by approaching the Father in the name of Christ, the Father will respond to us as he would to his only begotten Son. We ask thee, in the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ, to do what? To bless and sanctify this bread to the souls of all those who partake of it. 
Again, this is not transubstantiation. We're not changing the emblems, but the emblems are meant to change us. We are asking God to bless them, and we're asking him to sanctify them. Please make these emblems as holy as the objects they represent, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, so that those emblems can be for the sanctification of our own souls. Can our souls be sanctified through the atonement of Jesus Christ, through the breaking of his body, through the shedding of his blood? And may our souls be sanctified as we partake of the bread, which merely represents our partaking of Jesus into our lives, to taste, to digest, to metabolize, to internalize, to make it a part of us. And this promise is unto all those who partake of it, not some select few. The universality of the atonement of Jesus Christ, to me, is suggested by that simple word, all. I'm grateful to be among that number as one of any and of all who partake. My soul can be sanctified through the atonement of Jesus Christ. If, that is, I eat in remembrance of the body of thy Son, a body that was bruised, broken, torn for us, on Calvary's hill, as we sing in that beautiful sacrament hymn. I hope priests think of that as they are breaking the bread. That's the word we usually think of. But to tear the bread seems actually more accurate. The body of Christ was bruised and broken on Calvary's hill. But that other element, that it was torn for us, the veil of the temple was torn in half from the top to the bottom. And as Paul says to the Hebrews, that veil represents the body of Jesus. Amazing that priests, by tearing the bread, are tearing the body of Christ, but also parting the veil so that we can enter the presence of God. Whatever it is that separates us from him can be torn apart, fully removed so that we have access and come, come boldly to the throne of grace. And as we are remembering the body of God's Son, it's not simply the dying body that should come to mind. We can remember that that body also did so much during his life, blessing, healing, walking, lifting, teaching, working, cleansing, raising, calling, singing, to do with our body the kinds of things that he did with his, to become his hands for other people. As we do so, renewing these covenants, what are we promising? Three things in the sacrament prayer on the bread, that they are willing to take upon them the name of thy son. Elder Dallin H. Oaks gave an incredible talk called Taking Upon Us the Name of Jesus Christ as one of his very first conference talks as an apostle. And in it, he drew attention to the fact that we are testifying of our willingness, suggesting that it's not something that we can simply do on our own. I cannot take the name of Christ. I can simply show that I am willing to receive it if he is willing to offer it to me. And what does that taking upon ourselves the name of Christ entail? As Elder Oaks explained, it's a willingness to repent, to be a part of his church, 
to proclaim our belief in him, to serve him, to bear his authority, to enter his house, to trust in his atonement, to become his covenant sons and daughters, to do all that we can to achieve eternal life in the kingdom of our Father. Those are Elder Oaks's words. We are expressing our candidacy, he said, our determination to strive for exaltation in the celestial kingdom. Sign me up. I am willing to do all of that, all that bearing his name entails. Our second promise, to always remember him. And not kind of the passive popping back into our head kind of remembering that sometimes happens to us, but rather the active, intentional remembering that we choose to do. To always do that, to always remember him. And thirdly, to keep his commandments which he hath given them. To try harder, to do better, to be better, to master the discipline that lies at the heart of discipleship. How else do we expect to bear his name if we're not following the example of him whose name it is? Now, as we do that, what is the Lord's part of this covenant relationship? The end, that they may always have his spirit to be with them. Again, that is the crowning Melchizedek achievement of this Aaronic ordinance to bring God into our lives, this third member of the Godhead. In a talk that Elder David A. Bednar gave shortly after he was called to the Quorum of the Twelve, interesting that these apostles have such a laser focus on some of the simplest and yet most essential elements of the gospel. Right after they're called, what is the point of all of this? It is the atonement of Jesus Christ. It is tapping into his saving grace, his atoning power. How do we do that? Through things as simple and yet as essential as the sacrament. His talk was called, That We May Always Have His Spirit to Be With Us. And in it he said, If something we think, see, hear, or do distances us from the Holy Ghost, then we should stop thinking, seeing, hearing, or doing that thing. Seems so obvious. Why don't we do it then? That is part of having his name. That is part of always remembering him. That's part of keeping his commandments. And it's what's required of us for the Holy Ghost to be our constant rather than simply our occasional companion. Elder Bednar taught, I recognize we are fallen men and women, living in a mortal world, and that we might not have the presence of the Holy Ghost with us every second, of every minute, of every hour, of every day. That's true in my case, sadly. However, Elder Bednar said, the Holy Ghost can tarry with us much, if not most of the time. And certainly the Spirit can be with us more than it is not with us. We sometimes act as though feeling the Holy Ghost were some kind of rare or exceptional event, when in reality it's the absence, it's the loss of the Spirit that we ought to recognize and, and take note of. That ought to be the rare and exceptional event. With the same group of Aaronic priesthood holders the other day, I was asking them about the relationship between the two alwayses in the sacrament prayer on the bread. And as they noticed, one of them seems to be our part and the other always seems to be the Lord's. That it's up to us to always remember him so that then it's up to him to always grant us his spirit to be with us. And then I asked them, if we put always at the top, and again, there seems to be this parallel. If I will be an always rememberer, 
and keeper of his name and keeper of his commandments, then he will be an always bestower of his spirit. But what's short of always? And they came up with a pretty impressive list. They went from always to mostly to sometimes to rarely to never. And again, if you keep the parallels, can you imagine saying to the Lord, I am willing to mostly remember you because I mostly want the Holy Ghost's companionship. Or I will sometimes remember God so that he will sometimes give me the Holy Ghost. Even worse, I rarely remember God. No wonder I rarely feel his spirit in my life. Or the absolute lowest. I never feel God's spirit. Might it be because we never remember him? Now again, as Elder Renlund has taught, there are things that can interfere with our spiritual receptor sites and make it difficult to feel God's love or God's spirit. Mental illness being a key one that he identifies. But more common for most of us is sin as an interference in those receptor sites. And how do we overcome sin? We always remember Jesus. Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast. It makes me want to come to him, to lay aside my sins, to be changed by him so that I can be accepted by him. Is that really what we want most? There's that haunting phrase at the end of Doctrine and Covenants 11 verse 21 where Hiram Smith is told, before you seek to declare my word, you should seek to obtain it. It's a great part of the verse that we typically quote more often than the second part of the verse that talks about having the Spirit with us, the power of God unto the convincing of men. But there's an if there. Then ye shall have, if ye desire it, that Spirit. And there are times where I look at that and think, if I desire, why would we ever not desire the Spirit? And I think the answer, sadly, we all know, because there are times we desire something else, something lesser, admittedly, but something more immediately appealing for whatever reason. If we desire the Spirit, He will come. It will just require that we fulfill our part of this baptismal and sacramental covenant. Chapter 5 then follows in its wake the prayer on the wine, or in our case, the water. Behold, they took the cup. Stop there, even before we get to the prayer itself. They took the cup. That cup is singular. It's a little bit sad that because of our legitimate concern over health and sharing and spreading of germs and things, that we have to have individual cups for the sacrament. It wasn't always that way. In the early church, there was a singular cup used to pass around the water or the wine. You get that sense of the Last Supper as well. And by making it singular, I love the fact that whenever Jesus talks about a cup, it's always the bitter one that he drank to the dregs. And in the sacrament, we are sharing in that cup with him. We are taking the cup of his condescension, the chalice of his charity, the cup of his suffering, and we are drinking it along with him. The fellowship of his suffering is what Paul described. Amazingly, in Matthew 26, when that last supper slash first sacrament is described, it says that Jesus took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them. 
saying, Drink ye all of it. I want all of you to drink of this same cup, the one that I will very shortly ask if there's any way to avoid. And yet I am giving thanks to God for the opportunity of partaking of it, in spite of all that it entails. Paul taught about this cup powerfully in 1 Corinthians, where he was speaking of the sacrament. He said in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Do we see the sacrament cup as a cup of blessing? Do we sense that it's what grants us communion with the blood of Christ? I'll admit, one of my favorite things about going to YSA wards, I'm amazed at how silent it always is. They're all young single adults. There's no children there. No one's making a sound. And my favorite part of the meeting is when the sacrament cup is passed. Because it is so silent, the only sound you hear during the water part of the sacrament is the faint clinking of cups in the sacrament tray. And to me, that is the sound of laying our burdens at the feet of Jesus. To cast your burdens at his feet and bear a song away as we sing in the hymn. That is the cup of blessing. That is communion with Christ. Later in that same chapter, Paul says, Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of devils. This goes back to what the Lord himself said about not being able to serve two masters. You have to pick one at the expense of the other. Back to this idea of taking the cup singular. There are two cups to choose from, but you can only partake of one. Choose wisely. The next chapter, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul continues, As often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, singular, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. After all, that's what these emblems represent. And to reenact, to show the Lord's death, to give us an opportunity every week to make up for those times we slept through Gethsemane and to watch with him one hour. No wonder Paul says in that same chapter that every man should examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Are we looking inward before we look downward at the trays that are being passed? Do we examine ourselves? Do we have a Lord is it I moment as part of every last supper that we participate in? To me, one of the most powerful instances of this cup being mentioned and it's mentioned by Jesus himself here, is right after James and John have ill-advisedly asked him for seats right alongside him at the judgment day. And he says to them, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? This is not baptism in water, as happened in the Jordan River. That was three years ago. This is a baptism in blood. This is submersion in suffering. And he asks them, can you do that too? And perhaps not recognizing the weight of what he was saying, they said, yea, we can. We are able. And he saith unto them, ye shall drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. It shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my father. 
in what I consider one of the greatest talks ever given by Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, and he's given a lot of incredible talks. This one came when he was president of BYU, way back in 1987. It was called The Bitter Cup and the Bloody Baptism, and it was based on that exchange between Jesus and James and John. Another Holland said this, without any reference to the glory or special privilege they seem to have been seeking, this may strike one as a strange favor the Lord was granting James and John, but he was not mocking them by offering the cup of his suffering rather than a throne in his kingdom. No, he had never been more serious. The cup and the throne were inextricably linked and could not be given separately. You get a sense of that when you partake of the cup of the sacrament, that the cup and the throne are inextricably linked. It is a cup of blessing, but it is also a cup of bitterness. Are we willing to drink it with Jesus? If so, then we hear the blessing that is offered upon it and we are ready to partake. There are so many parallels to what we just saw in the blessing on the bread, but some beautiful differences here as well. O oh God, the infinite, the eternal Father, the intimate, we ask Thee, we can make no demands, we ask Thee in the name of Thy Son, Jesus Christ, He to whom You most instinctively respond, to bless and sanctify this wine, or in our day, this water. Again, to the souls of all those who drink of it, no need to change the substance, but please change my soul, that they may do it in remembrance of the blood of thy Son. And then to me, the most intimate part of this entire prayer, which was shed for them. Again, we sense the infinite and the intimate side by side. In remembrance of the blood of thy Son, that is the infinite aspect of the atonement. But which was shed for them is the intimate. I'll confess that sometimes after a week where I feel like I haven't lived the gospel as well as I should, when the water cups come before me in that sacrament tray, I sometimes look for the cup that is most full, recognizing what Jesus did in shedding blood for me that week that I felt I had more to repent of than usual. It was President James E. Faust who penned those powerful words, since set to music, how many drops of blood were spilled for me. By this point, we've already covenanted. We've taken the bread. We are simply remembering and renewing, reaffirming that we are serious about those things. We are witnessing unto thee O oh God, the Eternal Father, that we do always remember Him. The other two parts of that threefold covenant mentioned in the prayer on the bread are not repeated, but they are implied. Shortly after Elder Holland was called to the Quorum of the Twelve, he gave a talk about the sacrament as well. We're starting to see this theme develop. Elder Oaks, Elder Bednar, Elder Holland. In Elder Holland's called this do in remembrance of me, he said, neither of those other two phrases is repeated in the blessing on the water, though surely both are assumed and expected. What is stressed in both prayers is that all of this is done in remembrance of Christ. Therefore, remembering is the principal task 
before us. If we'll do that and all that it entails, then of course we will have his spirit to be with us. And the Lord doesn't even have to repeat his always there because he is always as good as his word. You take care of your always. The rest will naturally follow. I can be trusted on that. I remember years ago reading in a scholarly article uh, a journal entry written by a non-Latter-day Saint visitor to Utah not long after the tabernacle was built. And seeing what church would look like in the tabernacle from a non-member's eyes was fascinating. His name was Leopold Beerworth, and I'll always be grateful for what he said. Here are a few notes from his journal. Soon the tones of an excellent organ, well played, filled the vast building, and then a choir of about 50 singers, seated on a platform in front of the organ, arose and with a degree of perfection I have never heard excelled in any of our churches, sang one of Mozart's grand cantatas. Now so far, I'm really liking Brother Beerworth. Again, not a member of our church, but has very kind things to say. This is not some kind of anti-Mormon looking for ways to tear apart the church. He sees positive things and he's very quick to admit them. This tabernacle choir in its infancy is as good as anything I've ever heard back east. He's come to several church events in the tabernacle by now. And he says, the service was similar to the one we had been present at in the morning. This is back in the day where you'd have multiple meetings in the same day. He said, the music of organ and choir was excellent, just as before. We had again a discourse on doctrinal points, so another sermon, during the delivery of which the Lord's Supper was served. So now we get to see the administration of the sacrament through the eyes of a non-member. But this is the part that strikes me. He says, the Lord's Supper was served, not in a manner, however, I am sorry to say, to make the rite impressive. There were 12 plates and 12 cups and 12 deacons or bishops. They first distributed the bread and then the wine, or, or rather the water. And they had to come repeatedly for fresh supplies to serve all. Now that by itself wouldn't be the end of the world. We've seen that on occasion with deacons and teachers and priests as well. Somebody forgets the bread or they haven't prepared enough of it or they've messed up the prayer and have to repeat it or they forgot about the people in the foyer or whatever the case might be that makes it a little less than perfect in the administration of the sacrament. But to me, the most damning phrase in Leopold's diary was this one. The act resembled more the performance of a job than the administering of a holy ordinance. More than anything, that's what I hope we can avoid as we administer, or more importantly for each of us, as we participate in the sacrament. It can't just be a job to perform. It can't just be another checking of the box of something we do each Sunday. This is a holy ordinance. Even Leopold Beerworth knew that. Do we? Do we take the sacrament as seriously as the apostles did the Last Supper? Do we see him behind the bread and the water? Do we taste and see that the Lord is good? I pray that we do. Because if we do, every week can be sanctifying to the soul. Every week can be partaking of the fruit of the tree of life. Every week can be a re-immersion in the love of God. That, more than any other specific thing, is what church meetings are for. And that's what chapter 6 is all about.
what are church meetings supposed to look like? Chapter 6, verse 1, he's first going to start with baptism, since that's the closest parallel to sacrament as just explained. Behold, elders, priests, and teachers were baptized, and they were not baptized, save they brought forth fruit, meat, that they were worthy of it. Fruit, meat for repentance is how it's described elsewhere. In verse 2, we start to sense what that fruit entails. Neither did they receive any unto baptism, save they came forth with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. That is fruit, meat for repentance. That is witnessing unto the church that we have truly repented of all our sins, not holding any back. I am ready to go all in to the gospel. Verse 3, none were received unto baptism, save they took upon them the name of Christ, having a determination to serve him to the end. You see how that is implied in the first principles and ordinances of the gospel? The fourth article of faith stops with the first four, but almost every time that the doctrine of Christ is explained in the Book of Mormon, the fifth element is present. This is for the duration. We are baptized by immersion. Our membership should be equally deep. But don't worry, you're not on your own in that. That's what the church is for. You remember this great verse in Ephesians where Paul says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So in this analogy, Christ is the father of your covenants and the church is your mother in those covenants. Now take that and couple it with the proclamation to the world on the family. And what's the role of the father? To preside, provide, and protect. And the Lord does all of those things for us. He provides for us every needful thing. He presides over our discipleship. He protects us from the effects of sin and death. And what is a mother's role in the proclamation? To nurture. And so if the church is the mother of our covenants, then what is the church for? To nurture our faith to nurture us, to help us grow up in God by giving us opportunities to live outside ourselves, to reach outward, even as we strive to reach upward. The church is just as essential as the gospel in all of that. It provides structure. It provides opportunities to be a blessing to others. So notice this in verse 4. After they had been received unto baptism. Even that phrase, I think, should change the way we view convert baptisms, for example, or even our own baptism. It's not something that the missionaries are pushing or pleading. It's something we should be pleading for. We are received unto baptism. Will you please let me join the church? Will you let me be a part of this kingdom? Will you receive me? The Lord always will, if we'll come. But notice what happens after that has occurred and were wrought upon and cleansed by the power of the Holy Ghost. So we're first received unto baptism. Then the Holy Ghost really gets his hands on us and starts working out the kinks in our own imperfection. That's a powerful verb, wrought upon. You almost sense a blacksmith with hammer and anvil working on something, trying to bend it, trying to refine it by fire. We talk about wrought iron, for example. That is iron that had to be worked and twisted and shaped and changed and hammered out. The Holy Ghost is working on us. We are wrought upon. We are cleansed by him. 
No wonder we have to yield to the enticings of the Holy Spirit, as King Benjamin said. We've got to give in. We've got to surrender to that working, that cleansing. And then notice what happens. Elder Irene, by the way, has drawn our attention to the four verbs that can be found in what should happen to a new convert to the church or any one of us that are part of it. First, they were numbered among the people of the Church of Christ. Second, and their names were taken. Third, that they might be remembered. And fourth, nourished by the good word of God. So do you see what the church is meant to do? To number, to name, to remember, and to nourish. That's all part of that nurturing that the mother does for all of her children. And no one can truly grow up in God if we fall short of those four elements. All four have to take place. Unfortunately, a lot of time we stop after number one, the numbering. And we look at statistics and we try to see numbers and what's the average attendance and what's the retention rate. And we do a lot of numbers in the church. And is that all it is, is numbers? It's an important thing to number. Statistics are important. However, there always has to be a name behind every number. Numbers can paint a basic picture, but often it takes names to move us to action. Remember what we saw back in chapter 2 and 3. Every priesthood ordinance has a name attached. We call the person by name. They are numbered and named. And I sometimes worry that those who leave the church, do they do it in part because they felt that all they were was a number and not a name? Because if they're named, it's more likely that we will remember them. To remember someone in the same active, intentional way that we are called upon to remember Jesus Christ. And if we are truly remembering them in that way, then the desire to fully nourish them comes naturally. And what are we nourishing them with? With the good word of God. That's the seed, after all, that Alma describes being planted in us and growing up to a tree of life whose fruit is sweeter than any other fruit. We are nourishing them by the good word of God. What will that do for them? It will keep them in the right way. It's so easy to be distracted, especially when we're surrounded by mists of darkness. So it's that good word, the iron rod, that brings us to the tree of life, the nourishment of the fruit. That motivation helps us stay on the right way. It keeps us continually watchful unto prayer. That's one thing I'm grateful that the structure and the organization and the programs of the church has helped me develop those habits to work on those righteous reflexes. We're back to the Karate Kid now, waxing on and waxing off through church programs and organizations. But why? So that we can fight the good fight and it becomes reactive and reflexive, a natural part of who we are having put off the natural man. We're in the right way. We're continually watchful under prayer. And perhaps most important of all, we are relying alone upon the merits of Christ, who was the author and the finisher of our faith. In an interesting paradox, our activity, as we typically call it, in the church 
helps us grow and develop personally in so many incredible ways. That's what church callings so often do. They allow us to grow into it. And as soon as we're good at it, the tree gets shaken and we become acorns again, as Elder Hales used to say. But then we grow again. But throughout it all, it also introduces us to our weakness, like we talked about back in Ether chapter 12. We're intimidated by callings that we know we're inadequate for. And so what does service in the church do? It shows unto us our weakness so that we can rest assured that it is only through the sufficient grace of Christ that we can do anything. We begin to rely alone upon the merits of Christ, even as the Lord gives us opportunity to develop a measure of self-reliance as we're growing up in him. It's not our merits, it's his. It's his grace and not our works that are all sufficient. It is Jesus who is the author. He started writing it. And the finisher, he will bring it to conclusion of our faith. Now that's going to take a lot of work and a lot of time. So no wonder in verse 5, the church meets together oft. There's an emphasis on frequency here. That's been hard during this time of COVID quarantine. How often can we go to church? How often can we come and meet together? I don't know about you, but I need constant course correction. I need repetition in these drills of discipleship. In verse 5 specifically, they mention meeting together often to fast and to pray. Different blessings come from each of those activities. To speak one with another concerning the welfare of their souls. Can you imagine if our church meetings came closer to that ideal mentioned in verse 5? Yes, we meet together off. So check that. Yes, we fast together and we pray together. But do we speak with each other concerning the welfare of our souls? Or do we just speak? I mean, we don't even call them sermons. We call them talks. In divinity school, there were whole courses. You could, you could get a PhD in homiletics, which is the art and science of preaching. And in the church, I kind of chuckle. It's like, wow, we never took any homiletics classes, did we? We don't even call them sermons. It's just a talk. We're just up there talking. But at least we could be talking about meaningful things, about the welfare of our souls, instead of just hoping we get through the talk and not have to give it again. I'm off the hook for a couple of months, uh, and I hope my bishopric doesn't look at me again. To me, there is so much room for improvement in all of us. I don't have to spend the first five minutes of my talk explaining how the bishopric extended the opportunity to me or how nervous I was about it. Just begin. Get into the meat of your message. Talk to us about the welfare of our souls and yours. Have you ever listened to a testimony or a talk or a, a, a comment or a lesson in a quorum or a class that was real and raw? Have you noticed how that vulnerability just opens not just the heart of the speaker, but the hearts of the listeners too? That there is an openness to one another that tends to open the windows of heaven, that the Spirit comes and joins in the conversation, and it really does come to the welfare of our souls. It's the same phrase that Nephi uses at the end of 2 Nephi 32, that as we consecrate our performance to God, it will be for the welfare of our souls. That's why we're supposed to pray before we do anything, according to 2 Nephi 32. It's not just to have an opening prayer because we're supposed to check off that box. It's to be able to say to the Lord, what I'm about to do, 
it's got to mean something to me. I've got to get something out of it. And so please, God, what I'm about to do, in this case at church, please may it be for the welfare of our souls. If you're going to give a talk in church, strike a blow for the kingdom. If you're going to give a lesson in quorum or class, make a difference in people's lives by speaking for the welfare of our souls. Be real. Be raw. You don't have to air dirty laundry. That's not what I'm saying. But to be vulnerable and open and recognize, I need your help because I'm not perfect. I I don't want to just be a number, another statistic. I have a name. I have concerns and feelings and hopes and fears and weaknesses and strengths and great potential. Will you remember me and help me feel remembered by God? Will you nourish me and allow me to nourish you? Can we nurture each other and grow up in God? That's what the church is meant to accomplish. And in those places where I've seen it done, the church really does become the bride of Christ. It becomes the mother of my covenants in a way that I want to grow up, to be like her and like him, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this family means to me. When that happens, it cannot help but be a benefit for the welfare of my soul. I love the way our church is organized. My years in divinity school gave me the opportunity to visit other churches often and study ecclesiology, how churches are set up and how they run. And in some ways, ours is a mess compared to the professional clergy, well-oiled machine of other congregations. But to see the participation, the ennobling of people, because we get thrown into the mix and thrown into one another's lives, We often are told that there is no clergy in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But Elder Packer once pushed back and said, no, in reality, there's no laity because we're all clergy. I remember that striking me clearly once, especially as we started to really minister to one another. And I thought, whoa, this is divinity school since I was a kid. I didn't have to go to divinity school to learn pastoral care and homiletics and liturgics and theology. I've been doing that since I was a little kid, giving talks in church. There's my homiletics. Participating in priesthood ordinances. There's my liturgics. Being a home teacher. There's my pastoral care. Going to seminary and institute. There's my theology. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is divinity school for all of us because we are all supposed to grow up in God and become true disciples, true representatives of him. There's no clergy in the church, whatever. There's no laity. We're all clergy. How else is the Lord going to be able to author and finish our faith? Verse six, one other thing that we do often whenever we meet together is to partake of bread and wine in remembrance of the Lord Jesus. Again, chapter 6, growing out of what we just saw in chapter 4 and chapter 5. Now, verse 7, we're not perfect in this. We're still struggling. God is still finishing our faith. He's not done yet. So sometimes, in verse 7, there is a need for discipline by the church to help us 
develop the discipline that lies at the heart of discipleship. They were strict to observe that there should be no iniquity among them. And whoso was found to commit iniquity, and three witnesses of the church did condemn them before the elders, if they repented not and confessed not. That's the purpose of all discipline in the church, to help people repent. If that doesn't occur, then last resort, worst case scenario, their names were blotted out and they were not numbered among the people of Christ. Notice, by the way, the parallel between the verbs in four and the verbs in seven. Earlier, it was number and name. Here, those names are blotted out and they're no longer numbered. But guess what we can and should still do? Remember, try to nourish. The better we do that, the more likely they will come and want to once again be numbered and named among us. We should never stop remembering and nourishing. Because again, the goal is not just to have a pure church. The church is just scaffolding. It's meant to help us construct ourselves after the image of Jesus. So it's pure disciples that we're after. The church is simply meant to help us develop that purity and that discipleship. It's preaching repentance. It's what the sacrament is for. That's what the gift of the Holy Ghost is for. Everything we've seen in these chapters leading up to this. We saw that at the end of 3 Nephi, if you remember. As Jesus kept going back and forth, back and forth between making sure you're inclusive and welcoming to all and simultaneously protecting the sanctity of the sacrament and trying to strike and strike that balance is difficult, but that's what we're asked to do. Always with this promise in mind, verse 8, as oft as they repented and sought forgiveness with real intent, they were forgiven. Remember that beautiful verse in Mosiah chapter 26 where Alma is grappling with church discipline? King Mosiah is not going to do it, so it's going to have to be a church thing Alma's responsible for. And he doesn't want to mess up and offend God. He's trying to protect the sanctity of the sacraments. But at the same time, these are God's children he's worried about. So how much justice and mercy, how do I balance these in good judgment? And the Lord gives the most reassuring promise to him. As often as my people repent, will I forgive them their trespasses against me. There's no limit in that phrase. As often as my people repent. Same thing here. As oft as they repent, as long as it's with real intent. It's not pre-planned prodigalism, as Elder Maxwell used to call it. It's not just, a, ah, I'll sin now and repent tomorrow, no big deal. No, it's, I don't want to have to repeat my repentance. I don't want to sin again. That doesn't guarantee perfection from that moment forward. We remain human. Our weakness remains, even as we keep repenting of our weaknesses. But if our intent is there, hypocrisy is not falling short of our standards. It's claiming to care about those standards when we don't. But if the intent is there, then the opportunity to repent and the promise to be forgiven will always be there as well, as often as you need it. Now, with all of that in mind, all of those prior verses as preparation and justification for the church, then verse 9, I think, makes sense as a, as a culmination of this chapter. Their meetings, the meetings that are meant to take place often, the meetings where we'll fast and pray, the meetings where we'll get raw and real and talk about the welfare of our souls, the meetings where we'll partake of the sacrament because we desperately need that renewed covenant. All of those meetings were conducted by the church. Again, we are the church. 
and we're conducting the church meetings. This is of the people and by the people and for the people, okay? Their meetings were conducted by the church, and here's how. After the manner of the workings of the Spirit, and by the power of the Holy Ghost. I love the ending. For as the power of the Holy Ghost led them, whether to preach, or to exhort, or to pray, or to supplicate, or to sing, even so it was done. I love, this is a truly Spirit-directed meeting. The first bishop I ever served with always used to say, we can't over-prepare, but we can over-structure. He used that saying to describe the way we prepare our talks, sometimes over-structured and not giving the Holy Ghost any wiggle room. But I sometimes worry on a bigger scale, do we really allow the Holy Ghost to work in our classes, in our quorums, in our meetings, to really go where the Spirit leads us? Now, this can be taken to the extreme, and I want to avoid that. There's a balance to be struck, a, a contrary to prove between flexibility and order, okay? We need to master the iron rod fixity before we get to Liahona flexibility. And as the church spreads so rapidly across the world, I'm grateful on behalf of every newly called branch president, for example, that's wondering how on earth am I supposed to run church? I didn't go to divinity school, right? I don't know ecclesiology. How am I supposed to do this? Well, here's the standard. Here's the church handbook of instructions. There is a standardized approach to things. And especially where the church is young and where leaders are new, that standardization is such a blessing. If you've ever traveled in different parts of the world and gone to a Latter-day Saint congregation and realized, wow, they're on the same schedule as my ward back home. I didn't miss a beat. And it's the same hymns, even in a foreign language. It is a, it's a miracle. It is a sight to behold just how organized and unified we are as a church. I'm grateful for the pros of that kind of standardization. That being said, I also look forward to opportunities, and I revel in opportunities even now, in a quorum, in a class, that can truly be spirit-driven and spirit-directed. And where do we want to go today? Do we need to preach more? Do we need to exhort more? Do we need to spend more time praying or supplicating or simply have a sacrament meeting where all we do, instead of sermons, is songs? By the way, have you sensed a, a hint, maybe a preview of coming millennial attractions as we have had much more of a home-centered, church-supported experience? First, as suggested and recommended by the prophets, and then forced upon us by a pandemic. How do you run home church on weeks that you can't go to the chapel? How do you worship around the kitchen table or in the living room? I pray that these verses in Moroni chapter 6 can become our personal ideal. What needs to happen in my home, within my family, to fast, to pray, to speak with each other, to the ones that matter most to us, the ones whose souls we're most tied to personally for their welfare? And can we pay attention to the workings of the Spirit? and by the power of the Spirit, decide how we will worship God in our homes. Again, please make sure you balance your flexibility with order. But more than anything, be open to the promptings of the Holy Ghost. With church meetings like that, 
retention and reactivation wouldn't be such a challenge. You couldn't keep people away. So step back and look at this whole column of potpourri and all these little lessons that Moroni is squeezing together as he is finishing this record. The cause of Christ, our reliance upon the gift of the Holy Ghost, priesthood power to accompany priesthood authority, especially in the sacrament as we are willing to take upon ourselves the name of Christ. All of this leading us to a church and kingdom meant to prepare the earth for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Or if it makes more sense and gives you more momentum, then go in reverse from chapter 6 back to chapter 1. This is what the church is for. These meetings must matter. Let them help you not only renew, but keep the covenants that you make at the sacrament table. Allow the sacrament to help you see what priesthood is really all about, what it's for. Allow it to tie you to the Holy Ghost as your constant companion so that you will be empowered and enabled to be loyal to Jesus and the cause of Christ. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the bridegroom with the church as his bride. May we be loyal to him as he is loving and loyal to us. It is by living the principles that we find in even these little chapters at the beginning of Moroni that we prove our love and loyalty to him, that we recognize and accept the fact that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He said so himself.